Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3, is actually just a list of the various different people who worked on various different parts of the building of the wall. So that chapter 3 starts, then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it and hung its doors, and they consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hanael. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hasanaah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors and its bolts and its bar. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hikaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of... On and on like that it goes. The entire chapter Names, names of people you don't know, who I don't know, who history doesn't know. And then it tells us what part of the wall they worked on. But since we don't know the intimate details of the wall or the gates or the various different names that these gates and walls and doors had, I can read this whole thing. I can read each of the names and mispronounce them one by one for you. But in the end, what you're going to come away with is, a bunch of folks followed the directive of Nehemiah and got to work rebuilding the wall. And Nehemiah listed them for us. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repair, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. And Joyada, the son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, the son of that guy, they repaired the old gate. Uh, I can read all of this for you. Let's just take it as a given. If you're interested in knowing the various names of the various people and the various things they did, I invite you to read chapter 3 when you get home. But I invite you to read it out loud so that you would know what it would be like if I was to actually read it for you. And that takes us to chapter 4. How many of you are familiar with a magazine started back in 1865 by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a magazine that was called The Sword and Trowel. How many of you know about that? The Sword and Trowel still exists, actually. It's still a publication of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Originally, that name, The Sword and the Trowel, was derived from the next two chapters of the book of Nehemiah. Because what you're going to read is that the Jews in the rebuilding effort were constantly undergoing pushback from their neighbors, from the Gentiles living in the area who didn't want to see Jerusalem return to any kind of splendor. And so they ridiculed and they mocked and they threatened to cause wars and to kill. And to so Nehemiah realized that he's going to have to keep the work going but also protect the work that's what the next part of chapter 4 is going to be about until it reached the point where there were men actually doing the work, which is the trowel part, 
actually laying stones and brickwork again and rebuilding the walls. And next to them, there were men with swords to defend the work as the work was happening. And so Spurgeon picked up that name, The Sword and Trowel, and gave that as a name for his magazine because he wanted to represent the idea that we both work and sometimes we fight in this enterprise of putting out the gospel work. Every once in a while, as you're reading through the Bible, it happens to really, really relate to exactly what you're going through at that moment. And it brings a great deal of comfort, at least to me, to know that what I've been undergoing recently uh, isn't new. It's been going on ever since the early days of Nehemiah. I would argue, actually, it goes all the way back to Cain slaying Abel that there has always been conflict between human beings, especially between those that God has accepted and those that God has not. And so there's always conflict to be had. And the more that you do the work, the more that you are in the enterprise of the gospel, the more you're going to get pushback, the more people are going to berate you for doing that kind of work, the more you're going to be ridiculed and ultimately... When ridicule doesn't work, they go to lying about you. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 6. By the time we get to chapter 6, the enemies are going to go from ridiculing and threatening to saying, well, obviously what your plan is here, Nehemiah, is you're going to be a king. You're setting yourself up as king. And you've got prophets with you who are saying that you're supposed to be the next king. And that is contrary to everything that is happening among the Medes and the Persians. And so Artaxerxes is going to be angry at you when he finds out that you want to be a king. And that's the reason you're building the wall so that you can protect yourself against the coming conflict when Artaxerxes finds out what you're really doing. And then Nehemiah ends up having to say, none of that, none of that is true. None of that is true. Well, just recently, not to go into any great detail, I've gone through a very similar circumstance where people have not only decided to push back and have decided not only to ridicule, but have decided to just flat out lie, just lie on me. And what was even more frustrating is it's people who name the name of Christ, which makes it even more peculiar. Do you know what it means when I use the phrase neo-gnostic. Do you know what that means? Neo, new, gnostic, people who know. They know. And so there is a wave happening right now in the Calvinistic church world of men who are saying, we know what amount of doctrine you have to understand in order to be saved. And we know as a consequence of that who is and is not saved. And if you falter in your doctrine, let's say that you're Arminian, well, then you're plainly and clearly not saved. So that's why we refer to them as neo-Gnostic. They seem to have the mind of God. They seem to know who is and isn't saved, and they seem to know exactly how much theology is the correct amount of theology to be saved and to uh, be lost. So I'm not going to name any names, and I'm not going to go into this in any great detail, but the worst thing that these people can call you 
is an Armenian. If they say you're an Armenian, I mean, that's like as bad as it gets. They say you're Armenian, which is their way of saying you're not saved. Clearly, you're not saved. The argument is that you can't be saved by a false gospel. Arminianism, therefore, is a false gospel. If you were brought to Christ through Arminianism or Arminian theology, then that is a false gospel which cannot save, therefore you are not saved. Doesn't matter how much faith you have in Christ, doesn't matter, you're just, you're Arminian, you're not saved. For a long time, as I saw different articles and different arguments by these folks, I tried to figure out what it was about it that I didn't like. I knew I didn't like it. It's not biblical. I know that it's ignoring a lot of the stuff that the Bible does say about regarding every man as better than yourself. And so I knew that it was ignoring a great deal of the gospel. But I think I've got my finger on it finally, what it is I don't like about it. What it is is that they don't say your theology is bad. They say you're bad. They don't say your theology is wrong. They say you're wrong. They don't say your ideas are corrupt. They say you're corrupt. They make it very, very personal. So a couple of weeks ago, they decided to go after my wife. And they decided to call her, quite publicly, call her an Arminian. And so she's not saved. And because I'm married to her, they made up a story. I mean, literally made up a story that she had posted articles on her Facebook page that proved she was Armenian. And because I came to her defense, that makes me Armenian. Therefore, I married an Armenian. I'm now Armenian. Janine and I are not saved. Okay, not only is that a flat lie, but it's illusory. None of it ever happened. She didn't post any articles. She's clearly not Arminian. And because she didn't do that, I never rose to her defense about it. None of it is true. And yet they were saying it publicly. What was the forum? I missed the first part. What, on what forum? I'm not saying the forum because that's going to start naming names and identifying people. But let's say it was on Facebook, in a Facebook group. That's the forum. That's among a bunch of neo-Gnostics. Okay. Yeah. That's what you get for being late. <laughs> Well, you answered it. That's all I wanted to know. Now, my whole point in saying that, my whole point in bringing it up is not so that you can go, oh, man, how weird is that? Because it is. It's weird. It's about as wacky as it gets. Jeff and Jennifer came over to the house, and I showed it to them. And Jeff even went, okay, this is crazy talk. This is nut stuff. I tried to stay out of it. Because when people go after me, which they occasionally do because of what I say and what I believe, so occasionally folks, especially people who don't believe in sovereign grace, Calvinistic theology the way I do, people will say their opinions and they will sometimes counter me and they'll try to get a rise out of me and I never answer. Well, I can't any longer say I never answer. I virtually never answer because I don't want them to know they have my attention. Because once they know they've got my attention, well, then they just unload. And so I can actually frustrate them more by ignoring them. And then they just get really, really frustrated because they can't get a rise out of me. But because these guys attacked my wife, well, that got my back up. 
And so I wrote to them privately and said, you know, this is an illusion you're under. None of it's true. And we even had evidence of the very conversation that they attempted to say was proof, evidence of my wife's deep Arminianism. They went after her, and I'm, I'm like stupid crazy in love with her. And so, of course, I would defend her. At every turn, I would defend her. So I wrote to them, and I said, this is an illusion. And I gave them the evidence, and I, I spelled it out for them. And I said, there. And they wrote back and said, I'm a bold-faced liar. Because they had my attention. So I wrote back and said, forget it. I don't have time to bicker with you. I have neither the time nor the interest to carry on this way. So why did I bring all that up? Other than the fact that I just wanted to say it. <laughs> I've been wanting to say it for a couple of weeks, and Janine's been saying, don't bring it up. Don't, don't wallow in the gutter with them. Just be, a, be the bigger man and go on and don't. But I, here we're going to see the exact same thing in Nehemiah. This is one of those places where the Bible actually corresponds with life right now. Because Nehemiah is just doing the work that God called him to do. That's all he's doing. God has given him obvious, demonstrable signs that God is for him. Being sent by the king, being allowed to tell the king's foresters that everything they need is to be given to them. That they're going to not only rebuild the temple, but they're going to rebuild the walls on top of the fact that God sends a couple of prophets who say not only is God for you, but then they start talking about the future of Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem's not going to stay in this terrible state. It's going to be rebuilt and it's going to be expanded. And that ultimately God himself will be the wall of Jerusalem, like a pillar of fire around Jerusalem protecting it. So not only is Nehemiah getting demonstrable proof that God is for him, but as he's doing the work, he's receiving nonstop ridicule and hatred and ultimately, like I said, lies, just flat lies. They're going to cause him to say, you know, this is an illusion. <laughs> this isn't true. None of that's true. I'm not trying to be king. I'm not trying to fight Artaxerxes. I'm the cupbearer for Artaxerxes. He's the king who allowed me to come here and do this. What you're doing is lot. But that's the way that people always seem to respond. They start with the ridicule. They move on into the fighting and the hatred. And they lie, lie, lie their silly faces off. Nehemiah does the right thing. Stick with the work. Keep your head down. Go back to work. Do what God has called you to do. God will take care of the enemies. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So you got to just face the world head on. Face the trials that are going to come your way. And just keep doing what God has placed in front of you to do. And then when the world ridicules you and lies on you, because it will, when they do that, just realize that it happened to Nehemiah, and he kept going. Come to think of it, it happened to Paul, and he kept going. Come to think of it, it happened to Jesus, and he kept going. So just expect that not everybody's going to be in favor of your devotion to God's word. You probably had a Russian, a Russian hacker 
I was going to say something. <laughs> this is very parallel to Antifa calling everyone neo-Nazis and fighting them, punching them in the streets because they're trying to find controversy where there is none. And I just want to say that what Dad is saying is a very good life lesson for all of what's happening in the real world right now. I think a lot of it has to do with the inefficiency of my lawyer, Michael Cohen, <laughs> who... Okay. <laughs> All right, chapter four of Nehemiah. Let's start reading. We're going to start reading about Sanballat. He was one of the Gentiles in the area who withstood the work that Nehemiah was doing. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. It's always where it starts. It always starts with mockery and anger. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, and he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? By the way, feeble Jews, that would be what's known as ad hominem. Okay, you kids that are going to school, you too. What does that mean, ad hominem? You know? Are you familiar with the concept of logical fallacies? It means a logical falsehood. If I say something that's not logical... You can usually prove it's not logical based on one of the logical fallacies. One of those logical fallacies is what's called ad hominem. And all that means is to the man. So when you're arguing with somebody, when you stop arguing the point they're making and argue against them personally, that's a logical fallacy. For instance, if you and I are discussing what the best ice cream is. Now, for me, it's mint chocolate chip. Okay. What's yours? Vanilla, I guess. Vanilla? Okay. That's what somebody who looks like you would say. <laughs> See, I just attack you instead of attacking your argument. And so that's known as ad hominem. And in any kind of logical circle, that's not allowable. <laughs> but usually when people want to argue with you, They'll go straight to ad hominem. They'll go right to, yeah, you and everybody who looks like you. Yeah, your mama dresses you funny. You got a face only a mother could love, and she probably finds it hard. You know, those kind of comments are all based on the person, not based on their argument or the quality of their argument. In ancient Greek debate, they had a rule that the first person who stood up and spoke who laid out his argument first, before his opponent could respond to his argument, he had to be able to recite the argument to the satisfaction of the first person. And until the first person agreed that that person understood what he had said, the other person couldn't even respond to it. Well, that's ruthless logic. I mean, that's the kind of logic I wish we still had happening in America and happening in so many religious debates where people just argue past each other. And then at some point, it ends up ad hominem. 
Well, that's exactly what's happening here. I just wanted to add all that so that you could see that what was happening back then is the same stuff that happens today because people are still people and humans are still humans. And when they don't have a good argument, they go right to, yeah, well, you're ugly. And that's not the way you're supposed to argue. These feeble Jews, do you see what these feeble Jews are doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble and even the burned ones? So they're just ridiculing the attempts of the Jews to rebuild the wall, and they're saying it's an impossibility to do. They're going to have to do it all in one day, because if they don't, we're going to come knock it down again. As soon as it's night and they can't see us coming, we're just going to knock the wall down, so they better do the whole thing in a day. And, and look at the stones. They're lying in rubble. They've been burned. Now Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him, and he said, even what they're building... Here's the ridicule. If a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Ha, 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 ha. Man, that Tobiah the Ammonite, that guy's a car, didn't he? Because <laughs> he's saying, look, they're so feeble. They're so stupid that whatever wall they build, if a fox jumps on it, the whole thing's coming down. Because they don't know how to build walls. What do they know about masonry? after being slaves for 70 years building structures out of stone. What do they know? So then verse 4. Hear, O our God, how we are despised, says Nehemiah. Return their reproach onto their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. In other words, Cause them then to go into the kind of slavery that we've gone into. And do not forgive their iniquity. And let not their sin be blotted out before thee. For they have demoralized the builders. Well, that was their whole point. By threatening them, by mocking them, by making fun of them. They've taken away the ongoing enterprise that Nehemiah has been guiding to rebuild the wall, and now they're so demoralized that they just don't want to even continue because they're believing the threats that as soon as we build something, they're just going to knock it down again. So what's really the point? So Nehemiah prays to God. I like the fact that Nehemiah did not go to them and say, look, guys, come on, huddle up. Let's talk through this thing. We can do it. We're, we're, we're a team. We can do it. He goes to God about it. And says, God, you know that our enemies are against us, but don't forgive them. And take them out of here. Take them into slavery somewhere. And don't let that sin against us be blotted out. Because if, in fact, the Jews are rebuilding the temple where the worship of God is and rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, the very place where God has chosen to place his name, then any conflict with that, anybody that would try to stop that work going forward are, in fact, committing a sin because they're standing against the work that God has ordained to be done. Verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Not only was he praying about it, but remember that they were sent prophets, 
And these prophets had encouraged them to do the work of the building because they foresaw what Jerusalem was eventually going to be. So what do they do? Do the enemies back off? Do they back away? Do they say, "Eh, there's nothing we can do. The wall's getting built anyway. It's not to its full height yet. It's only half the height, but it's getting done. So I guess we might as well give up. We've clearly been defeated. Oh, no, no, no. No, instead they double their efforts and say, we're going to fight you. Now it came about. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches were being closed, they were very angry. Do you know what the breaches are? Those would be areas in the wall where all of the stonework is so knocked down that there's a hole in the wall. That's a breach. And so now they're repairing the breaches. So the wall is consistent. The wall is strong now. And now that they're hearing that the breaches are are back up, that means that they can't invade Jerusalem. They can't get through the wall. And that makes them, of course, very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. If we can't do it with words, we'll do it with our sword. We're going to come and fight with you. And just the threat they're hoping, just the threat of a fight, they hope will be enough to demoralize the Jews so that they don't continue their building effort. But we, here's their response, we, we under Nehemiah, we Jews, we prayed to our God. Notice how often that happens. As they come up against conflict, as they come up against enemies, as they're discouraged, again, they don't assemble as a group and say, come on, guys, we can do it. Teamwork, we can do it. They go back to God every time because that's their source of strength. That's their source of commitment. That's the reminder that they need in order to get back to the work they've been called to do. We prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and put a stop to their work. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten different times they will come up against you from every place where you may turn? Well, then I stationed men at the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords and spears and bows. So essentially all that's telling you is that the surrounding Gentile nations, in order to stop the work, We're threatening, we're going to come and we're going to kill you. And it was being said in Judah, the work is getting to be too much. We're not able to handle the amount of rubble and rubbish from the wall falling down in the first place. And we're unable of ourselves to rebuild the wall, so they're being discouraged. And then the enemies are saying, we're going to come and kill you. And then there were some Jews who happened to be living near the Gentiles who were saying this. And they come to Nehemiah and they tell Nehemiah, look, here's the plan. They're not only trying to discourage you, but they're going to come at night. They're going to attack you. And by attacking and killing you, they believe they're going to stop the wall from being built. So Nehemiah, being a smart man, says, well, here's what we're going to have to do then. 
As I mentioned at the beginning of this evening, this is the beginning of the sword and trowel period. This is the beginning of we're going to build, we're going to keep building, but we're going to be ready to fight. We're going to have a sword in one hand. We're going to have a trowel in the other hand. We're going to keep the work going. And then when they do come to fight against us, we're prepared for them. We're prepared to fight back. Yes, Sandy. Pastor Jim, I'm confused about why the enemies of the Jews didn't, um, didn't obey the decree from the king to allow them to build it. That, that, that's kind of escaping me. Yeah, I think the king in Medo-Persia, in Shushan, is far enough away from Jerusalem and has a relationship with Nehemiah where he trusts that Nehemiah is just going to go back and worship his God and rebuild the city as a result of people needing to live there. So he's far enough away from it that it's no threat to him. But the people right in that area... They've been living in that land for the last 70 years. That's the land they consider theirs. And so now the Jews are returning. Lots of Jews are returning. And they're rebuilding the temple. And they're rebuilding the wall. They're establishing the city again. Well, that's pushing those Gentiles out of that area. Don't forget that this is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. And now they're being pushed out of it. Is so, that, that king's jurisdiction? That is that king's jurisdiction. But even if he were to give a decree saying that they're allowed to come back and build, that doesn't mean that everybody who's being directly affected by it follows the king's decree, because how's the king ever going to find out? He's far away in Shushan. Let's put it this way. Are there any laws on the books here in America that you disagree with? Yeah. See, that was kind of easy, wasn't it? Uh, Here, I'll just give you one that's real simple. Uh, abortion is the law of the land. Okay, do you agree with that? Do you agree with abortion? You think it's a good idea? You think that? Okay, well, that's kind of what's happening here. There's a command that has come down from the king. They just disagree with it. Okay. Yeah, no problem. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times they will come up against us. From every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with swords and spears and bows. And when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, and I said, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So what's the inspiration to fight and defend yourself? The fact that you have a great and awesome God. And he's for you, and he's on your side, and he's the one that decreed that Jerusalem be rebuilt. So you're doing God's work. So know that you're going to have the strength, you're going to have the wherewithal to defend yourself and your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses. Verse 15, and it happened when our enemies heard that it was now known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one back to his work. So the enemies found out, oh, apparently we can't surprise them. They're prepared. They're ready to fight. And again, you will notice that Nehemiah said that they found out that God had exposed their plan. 
When in fact, it was some men who had come and said, this is what they're planning, but all the credit for all the things that happen always go back to God. God frustrated their plan. And it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears and the shields and the bows and the breastplates and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load in one hand doing the work and in the other hand they had a weapon. There it is. There's that sword and trowel idea. If they were carrying a bucket of bricks or a bucket of stones, they would carry it with one hand and they'd have a sword in the other hand. So they were building, they were working, but they were also completely ready to fight at any point. So committed were they to this and so sure were they that their enemies were going to attack that we're going to find out in a moment that even when they went to the water, which means to go and bathe, they took their clothes and their swords with them. They were ready to fight any moment. Verse 18. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. Okay, the trumpeter would be the person who's going to call out the alarm. They're going to blow a trumpet to let them know that the enemies are coming. And I said to the nobles, the officers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and expansive, and we're separated on the wall a good distance from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. In other words, we don't know where the enemy is going to come from. We don't know what direction he's going to come from. We're all working on the wall, but it's a long wall, so we're a distance from each other. So if you hear a trumpet, go to where the trumpet is, because that area of the wall is being attacked by the enemies, and we all need to be together to rally around to fight off the enemy. Verse 21, so we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. And at that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by day and a laborer by night. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes, and each one took his weapon even to the water. So we're always ready to fight if we're attacked. Now chapter 5, while the wall is being rebuilt, Nehemiah turns his attention to the society of the Jews and the way that they're dealing with each other. There is a very specific law. In fact, if you would, um, Tom, I was going to just say generally somebody, but Tom, look up Exodus 22, 25. I'm going to go to Leviticus 25 while you do that. Have you got Exodus 22, 25 there? This is part of the law specifically to Israel about taking interest or usury from your brethren. Go ahead and read. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not take exact interest from him. Leviticus 25, 35 says, Now 
in the case of countrymen of yours, if they become poor and his means with regards to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. So the whole idea is if somebody was down on their luck, running out of money, running out of food, they could ask people who had money, who had food, and God's law says that if they are countrymen, if they are fellow Jews, that you give them what they need and you don't take interest off them for it. You don't gain any benefit. You don't say, yeah, I'll loan you five bucks, but when you pay me back, you owe me ten bucks because I loaned you something. You know how it works. If you go to the bank and you borrow some money, they're going to charge you interest. Well, God was very clear in saying among the Jews, don't charge interest to each other. But when Nehemiah got there, this is what he discovered. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. In other words, they needed to get some food in order to sustain themselves. And there were others who were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. So you've got children, you've got a wife, you've got a family to take care of. Maybe you have some land. Every family in Jerusalem was bequeathed a portion of land. Okay, what am I going to do to get some food? We're really, really hungry. We need food more than we need this land. I'll give you my land if you give me your food. So then what do they end up with? Nothing. They eat the food, but now they no longer own the land. So we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. And also there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. In other words, they couldn't pay the high taxes that the king was demanding. And so they're borrowing money to pay their taxes. And who are they going to for this food and for this money? They're going to their Jewish brethren who have some food or who have some money. And then what are the Jewish brethren doing? They're keeping their fields and keeping their houses and putting their sons and daughters into slavery. And now... Our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. In other words, we're the same people. We're Israelites. Our children are like their children. And yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to somebody else. So how are we going to make any money? How are we going to get any food if we had to give away what we already have? in order to get some food in the first place. Well, now we're utterly destitute, and now we are becoming slaves to other Jews, which the law says don't do. And yet the mighty and the powerful among the Jews, the ones who have something that they can leverage over their brethren, are doing so. So what's Nehemiah's response? Verse 6, And then I was very angry when I heard their outcry, 
and these words. And I consulted with myself. That's what the NASB says. It means I thought about it. And I consulted with myself and I contended with the nobles and the rulers. And I said to them, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. In other words, what he's saying is our Jewish brethren who were slaves in other nations We've spent everything we had to free them and to buy their freedom so that they wouldn't be slaves to Gentiles. And yet now, look, they've come here and they're slaves to other Jews. How is that right? Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and they could not find a word to say. So again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? In other words, look around you. You're surrounded by enemies and you're praying to God to protect you. You're walking around with your sword and your trowel and you don't even take your clothes off. You're always ready to fight and you're praying to God to protect you. And while you're praying to God to take care of you, you're doing the things that God said don't do. Does that make any sense, is Nehemiah's argument. You ought to walk in the ways of God, because look around you. You have the reproach of the nations, our enemies. And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. So please let us leave off this usury. In other words, remember that Nehemiah is the governor and he says, I give them money, I give them food, I give them grain, and I don't take any usury back from them. I don't end up owning their land. I don't own their children. I don't take from them. I'm doing what God said to do. I'm seeing people who are hurting, who are my brethren, and I'm helping them. And I'm not expecting anything in return. Shall we apply that for a moment? I think it kind of applies itself. After all, if we see a brother, if we see a sister, if we see a person who has a need, well, then we certainly ought to help them, and we should not help them in anticipation of what we're going to get out of it. Because what we get out of it is the joy of the Lord. What we get out of it is knowing that we are acting in accordance to what we profess to believe. So Nehemiah said, follow the way I do it, and please let us leave off this usury. Verse 11 Please give back to them this very day their fields and their vineyards and their olive groves and their houses and also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain and the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. And then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and I took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment, and I said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. In other words, now that you've agreed, you're going to give back all the stuff you've taken from your brethren. If you don't, God's going to shake you out, and you're going to end up with nothing. 
and all the assembly said amen and they praised the Lord and then the people did according to this promise now Nehemiah is going to give them an example he's going to say look I'm your governor and according to right I could be taxing you like crazy in fact the rule is that you ought to be giving tithes to me so that I can have a wealthy existence and a big table full of people and noblemen and I can feed everybody and that's that's just my portion of the food whatever food we have in Jerusalem a portion of it belongs to me because I'm the governor and to this day since I've been among you I haven't taken anything sounds like Paul talking to the Corinthians saying so that the work of God may go forward I took nothing from you so that you couldn't say that I was in it for the money. Verse 14, moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I or my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food. But the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver and even their servants domineered the people but I did not do so because of the fear of God I also applied myself to the work on this wall we did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work moreover there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us I'm the governor here we're gonna have visitors from other nations they're gonna eat at my table I have hundred and fifty people who sit at my table that I feed every single day and I still didn't take anything from you I still paid my own way now he describes what those meals were like now that which was prepared for each and every day was one ox and six choice sheep and also birds were prepared for me and once in every 10 days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people so he cared more about the welfare of the people at his own expense he took care of everything the governor was required to do and he fed the foreign dignitaries who were coming in and he fed the 150 Jews and noblemen and officials that sat at his table he did all of that and didn't take anything from the people he did all that and explained all that so that he could contrast himself with the people who were taking usury from their brethren for every little thing what you want some food well then you're gonna pay me back and you're gonna pay me back extra what you need some money well then I'm gonna have to take your land what you're out of food and you're out of money and you're out of land I'm gonna take your children I'm gonna end up owning everything you have Nehemiah contrasts that to look what I've done I've been here with you for 12 years and what have I taken from you nothing and previous governors took it they laid heavy taxation on you because they could because it's their right because it's within their purview and their power and they I've done none of that so I can require you all to give back what you've taken from your brethren so remember me oh my God says verse 19 remember me oh my God for good 
according to all that I have done for this people. Now, I started tonight by saying, after the enemies have come after you and ridiculed you, and after they have threatened you, the next thing they're going to do is go to lying, which is why I told that little story. So let's just read a little bit more so that you can see how the lie falls out now. Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, okay, those same guys, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Kepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me, which I think is why the place was called Ono. (laughs) You don't want to go to any place that's called Ono. If somebody comes to you and says, want to go with me? Where are you going? I'm going to a place called Ono. The answer is, no, I don't want to go. Thank you. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I answered them the same way every time. Then Sanbalat sent his servant to me in this manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations... And Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. That's what the prophets are supposed to say. And now it will be reported to the king, to Ahasuerus, according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Okay, you wouldn't come when we invited you. How about if we lie on you to the king? How about if we tell the king that you're causing an insurrection? How about now? Are you going to come now? Well, every one of us after our flesh would want to say, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to march right over there and give those guys a piece of my mind and tell them this is a horrible lie and they should not do it. Well, fortunately, Nehemiah recognizes the trap. Again, I think, oh, no, is a clue. Then I sent a message to them saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. How I wish that was what I had written back to our neo-Gnostic critics. I should have just written back that verse. Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they'll become discouraged with the work and that it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. And when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, 
Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his own life? I will not go in. And then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. So even he was an enemy who was within the gates saying, why don't you go hide in the temple? Because they're going to try to kill you at night. And then they're going to know right where he is. He's in the temple. Go get him. So he perceived that God had not sent him. He uttered a false prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And he was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sambalot according to these words of theirs. And also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Pretty cool story, huh? So it's got a lot of political intrigue and a lot of life lessons in it. What do we take away from this then? I think the simplest lesson is, if God has given you work to do, do the work. Because the enemies in this world are not going to like the fact that you're doing the work of God. Because when you do the work of God, you're like a flashing red neon light that says, God is real, God exists. I'm owned by God, I'm sold out to God, I'm convinced of Christ, there is judgment coming. And they don't like that idea. So they're going to try to shut you up. They're going to try to shut you down. They're going to try to get you to just go away and stop doing that stuff. But the work of God has a cause. And that cause is the glory of God. And if God, for his own glory, assigns you a task, you do that task, even if it's not easy. Do the work. Do the work. The work's not always going to be easy. Christ said, if you're going to follow him, you take up your cross and follow. A cross is a place where you're going to be crucified, where you're going to give up your own life. And Christ said, that's what it takes to follow me. Well, if he said that's the prerequisite to following him, then he's saying that it's not always going to be easy. And most of the reason that people shrink back from the work of God, at least in my experience through all these years I've had in the church now, most of the time that people shrink back, it's because they just can't take the pressure anymore. Somebody has convinced them to just kind of give up. So I'm here to say, don't give up. God is still for you. God, who is eternal and doesn't change, is still on your side. Nothing about him changed. He didn't change his mind. He didn't give up on you. So you really have no cause to give up on him. And when it gets hard, that doesn't mean that he has stopped being sovereign and somehow now the trouble has broken through and gotten to you. He's still just as sovereign when it's difficult. He was sovereignly in charge of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the wall, even as the enemies were trying to stop it, even as the enemies were trying to discourage the Jews, even as the enemies were causing their lies. Even though they were doing that, God was still completely in charge, still sovereign, still telling people, go get the work done. So that's the lesson for us. Go do the work. 
Questions? Well, I marvel at the fact that Satan himself, uh, in my opinion, back then was after those Jews yeah. as he is today. Yeah. Jesus said that they, well, first he talked about himself and said he was going to be hated without a cause. And then he said, you, because you're aligned with him, you'll be hated without a cause. And you look at the history of the Jews and the history of the world, and they are hated without a cause. And that's, yet again, another evidence that the Bible is true. When you see the way that the Jews are persecuted, even to this very day, as their ancient enemies there in the Middle East are trying to blow them off the map and drive them into the sea, they continue to be hated without a cause, which validates exactly what the Bible says about them. Anything else? I do. Yes, sir. In the discussion on interest, the word principle wasn't used once tonight. How does that work in? According to the law and according to what we even read tonight in Nehemiah, you should have given just to give. If somebody needed food, you just feed them, mm-hmm. not saying that food I gave you is a principle and I expect that back. If somebody needs money, you just give it to them. You know, kind of the way we do here. When somebody just has a need, we give it to them. We don't say, you know, that that's the principle and you're going to owe us interest on top of that stuff. We just give. So I think that's what the rule among the Jews was supposed to be, okay. was just give to their benefit. Anything else? Well, then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.